Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Al Edmansky, a longtime community organizer, social entrepreneur, and the host of the upcoming Below the Radar series, The Power of Disability. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us once again. We are lucky to have Alit Mansky uh, with us today. Uh, he's going to be guest hosting a special series with us. So welcome, Al. Hey, Am. Nice to be with you. As they say in broadcast land, I'm a longtime listener of Below the Radar. <laughs> <laughs> Al, I'm wondering if we can begin, if you could just introduce yourself uh, a little bit. Well, I consider myself a community organizer. That's my trade. Um, and in order to be a community organizer over the last several decades, I've had to learn to be a social entrepreneur, to find independent ways of financing um, that uh, kind of work. And most of my community organizing and social entrepreneurship has been in the, <clears throat> in the disability world. Um, and that, uh, is because I have, uh, my second daughter, uh, has a disability. So I've been, uh, a member of the broader disability movement for over four decades now. I love that you use the word, uh, community organizer, because that, that word doesn't get used that often these days. It, it definitely was around in the sixties and seventies and eighties and other names started uh, coming to be as a kind of professionalization in the nonprofit sector emerged, or we see words like social innovation today. Wondering if you can talk a little bit how you first got involved in community organizing. Well, my first involvement in community organizing was back in, in Nova Scotia. And if you could believe it, it was uh, with seniors. I was, <laughs> I was uh, <clears throat> young and had long hair and, um, and really didn't fit, fit the picture, but, um, the injustices and inequalities experienced by uh, older people in in those days. There wasn't uh, the guaranteed income supplement at the time. There was significant poverty. It was uh, it was um, fundamental. There was no apparatus to support them. So that's where I began, and uh, um, along the way um, became uh, friends with met and became friends with John McKnight, who uh, I suppose you could say am inherited the Sololinsky. Uh, mantle of community organizing, but I think uh, John took it um, in a different direction. And so it was not only place-based as Alinsky was, but it was focused on the assets of communities, the assets of individuals. <clears throat> and so rather than just focus on what was wrong, it was paying attention to what was working and to link up that all together and leverage that for social change. In the decades that you've done community organizing, so much has changed from technology to ways of working. But, you know, one of the things that people, um, certainly in the period of the Harper government in Canada, let's say people don't necessarily remember that as a period of uh, advancing uh, social programs, but you were uh, involved uh, with a number of people uh, organizing around the registered uh, disability savings plan. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how an idea like that comes to the surface, gains public policy traction, and then the real kind of political and community work of uh, bringing that uh, to the House of Commons and seeing it uh, passed as legislation. <clears throat> 
Yeah, I mean, the registered disability savings plan is um, something like a, it's a cross between an RRSP and a registered education savings plan, and its focus is the long-term financial well-being of of people with disabilities. Um, we work. We actually work with three different. Uh, Prime Minister governments, uh, and so it was a t- it was a fifteen year campaign. <laughs> we started when Jean Chrétien. <laughs> There's probably some listeners you have who don't even weren't born when, when he was Prime Minister, <laughs> and then uh, Paul Martin, uh, and uh, and then uh, Harper's uh, government. Uh, Paul Martin actually put it in the election he lost. He actually put the notion of a savings plan for people with disabilities in his platform. And so as soon as uh, Harper was elected, we thought, oh, no, with fingerprints of the liberals all over it, you know, we're going to have to go back to square one. But we got really lucky in that um, we got introduced very, very quickly to somebody who worked on um, uh, on the Jim uh, Flaherty, uh, the, who be, was the Minister of Finance's political campaign, um, and discovered that Flaherty had a child with a disability. And so it was like a big gate opening. And so uh, he he said, I get this and uh, I, I support it. And so he cracked the whip and um, and became a champion for it in, inside the government. In order for us to get there, we had to do grassroots mobilization, though, uh, Am. And I think that's to your point earlier, is that a lot of policymaking in the last 20 or 30 years kind of relied on really smart people and uh, credentialed people to kind of take the issue forward into government, but without the base, without the broad base. And um, what we did was we we actually organized uh, people with disabilities and families across the country as a prelude to going to the to into the prime minister's offices. And so that base really helped us with Jim Flaherty. And, and then the rest is history. Um, there's now over six billion dollars in collective assets in the registered disability uh, savings plan that people with disabilities can use on whatever they want they're not clawed back by any provincial or territorial government they don't have to report on what they're spending it may be one of the first instances of a group of people not having to tell the system what they're spending their money on or reporting it so it kind of removed the welfare elizabethan poor law you know uh, apparatus uh, from that particular social program, the RDSB. Great. Now, Al, you're going to be uh, guest hosting a, a special series on Below the, the Radar. We're really lucky to have you um, uh, hosting uh, on the power of disability. I'm wondering if you can set up this series for us and, and who you're going to be talking to. Well, thanks uh, for the opportunity, Am. I really appreciate the platform that you and Below the Radar and your colleagues and SFU is offering. So 40 plus years in the disability world, and I had to unlearn a whole lot of things that that I thought I knew about disability. First of all, that it could be fixed. Or second, secondly, that it required uh, a charitable impulse from society on behalf of people with disabilities to the point where I arrived, where, where I recognized that and realized that, you know, people with disabilities are creators of the world that we live in. And that if we had uh, ignored their contributions, we would not recognize the world we're in. The big difference is that most of those contributions are not acknowledged or that the contribution of the individual is acknowledged, but not their disability. 
So in a sense, disability is written out of history in two different ways. So I wrote a book called The Power of Disability. And, you know, there's 100 plus stories in there and it's packaged as 10 lessons for surviving, thriving and changing the world. But it doesn't do justice, you know, to what I had researched. There's hundreds and hundreds of phenomenal stories. So the podcast profiles six you know, of the more interesting people locally and uh, internationally that I ran across in my research. And the point is, is to have the listener uh, appreciate people with disabilities as authoritative, authoritative sources on justice, on political campaigning, on democracy, on citizen action, on art, on love, on sexuality, on social change, on astronomy, just about every aspect of all aspects of human endeavor. So generally, that's the point of the power of disability as a framing uh, and the point of the podcast. So who are some of the the guests you'll be you'll be speaking with? Well, uh, local disability justice um, artists like Carmen Papalia, a phenomenal individual. Uh, I mean, as a performance artist, he is incredible. He is doing um, audits of inclusion, accessibility on major installations, museums, art galleries around the world. Uh, But if you look at the theory behind his work, it's actually really a call for citizen action. I I mean, I think he's a true Democrat. Right now, he's working on an intellectual framework for action called disability justice. But if we were to integrate that into our own work, you know, uh, we'd be more engaged as citizens in the big challenges of the day. So Carmen is one of the guests. Um, I don't know if you want me to go through them all. Uh, yeah, M, or... uh, 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 well, Car- Carmen, I know, is going to be involved with the new SFU gallery up on Burnaby Mountain, right on the front end of the design of it. So it's really uh, exciting. But yes, sir, if you could mention a couple of more people, you don't need to go through everyone, but whoever else, I know you don't want to leave anyone out either. <laughs> no. And, and my problem is, it's almost like, I don't want to say it this way, this sounds a little too arrogant, and I don't mean it this way, but it, it feels like it's... It's a love letter to these people because they're they're phenomenal. The world should know more about them. Um, Absolutely. You know, one of one of the people pro, pro, uh, profiled is Barb Good. I mean, she's the first person with a disability to appear before the United Nations. She lives here in Burnaby. Um, she is a proponent. She's the queen of plain language. Some people would say she has uh, the disability of, uh, of intellectual disability or a developmental disability. It's almost, it's, it's, it's almost irrelevant to even uh, identify somebody as having a disability. Uh, it's a phenomenal woman. She's led uh, the, the campaign for the rights of people with intellectual disability locally, provincially, nationally, has taken on court cases. A phenomenal individual, Barb Good. Um, uh, another woman is, um, is, um, Judith human. Um, now it's possible by the time this airs that she will have an even higher profile because she is the featured activist in the documentary Crip Camp, which is on Netflix. And it's one of the first ones that the Obama, uh, Michelle and Barack Obama financed with their new company. 
and it's on the short list for best documentary um, at the upcoming uh, Academy Awards. It's it's essentially a profile of the largest, longest sit-in um, of the American government that by disabled people, by anybody, but this one was by disabled people that led to the Americans with Disability Act. And Judith Human is, she was voted one of the 100 top women of the of the uh, 20th century uh, by Time magazine. Anyway, I'm delighted that she's uh, profiled in this. Mm-hmm. So those those are a couple more. Yeah, that's that that's amazing, and um, Al, in in your um, uh, long history of community organizing, you've really had a front row seat looking at the civil society sector and government and the public sector uh, change over time in terms of how to make change in, in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, reflect on some ideas you have on the sector as a whole, particularly. Uh, in this pandemic moment, coming out of this pandemic moment in terms of what are things that need to be thought about or redone or reimagined in the in the sector? Well, it's a, there's a, many answers to it. And I, uh, you know, I don't know exactly where to go with it, but I, I would say uh, um, an increased emphasis on justice and equity uh, um, I, I think uh, sometimes we get ourselves into into knots around the nuances of social change, but I think a fundamental challenge to our economic structure is in order. Um, I would say to capitalism and its excess greed that it you know that exists, which is why you know I'm I'm a big fan of of a restructuring of the economy uh, toward uh, basic income and, you know, why, you know, we're quite involved in a basic income campaign for disabled people right now. So that's one element. Another element is I think it's time for people like me and big organizations and people who are not experiencing the challenge, who are not living with it. It's time for us to step back, to use whatever privilege or influence we have to enable people to speak for themselves. In the case of disabled people, enough is enough. It's time for the power and presence of disability to be felt in the public policy arena and for them to take it over. So the days of the smart credentialed, you know, public policy, you know, want, you know, uh, taking over from the constituency, you know, is over. So that's a that's going to require a fundamental altering because I, I think it's a that that really means grassroots campaign and political organizing. Uh, uh, the the third element is a variation on this, uh, you know, which is to have faith in people's ability to speak for themselves, whether they're poor or homeless uh, or have a disability, uh, you name it, uh, or have an opinion and are engaged in dealing with climate change. So um, that, um, you know, that might seem obvious <laughs> um, to somebody like you who's a community organizer, but I don't think it's obvious out there. You know, the days of, you know, it's a, it's a variation on what I said of others speaking for ourselves, uh, I think um, has been proven to be limited in terms of preparing us for COVID. And in terms of dealing with the cracks exposed by COVID, so uh, it does require a shift in mindset 
to uh, appreciating the value of people speaking for themselves, the capacity, the competence, uh, the power uh, of people uh, to define their own problems and challenges and to determine the solutions and to determine when others come in to support them. God, I, I hear John McKnight being channeled through your voice there. Um, <laughs> um, uh, 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 I do have a question though around the basic um, income piece that where discussions are happening at the federal government and other levels. I'm wondering if you could speak to that uh, portion of what's on the, the policy table in terms of uh, national grassroots advocacy that's happening uh, around this. Yeah, so the you know the reality is that uh, the majority of people who are poor today in Canada are, are disabled, uh, and so the the mindset that looked at people with disabilities as um, to be pitied or uh, as recipients of charity is a mindset that has kept uh, people with disabilities program rich but cash poor. And the you know the the autonomy, the agency that comes with having the money to make your own decisions of, about your life uh, has been missing from the solution to um, um, the dilemma of people with disabilities uh, in Canadian society. And so we have reached the point where the Canadian government has. Uh, promised in the throne speech a Canadian disability benefit meant uh, to top up uh, the provincial and territorial uh, income support that is currently available. Um, as a community, the disabled community has said, we interpret that as the equivalent of a basic income for disabled people in Canada. Uh, that's been reinforced by the basic income report here in British Columbia that was released uh, earlier this year. Um, beginning on page 399, it kind of lays out the importance and rationale of a basic income for disabled people. So we're, uh, we're engaged in a, in a pan-Canadian grassroots initiative representing every part of the country representing every conceivable disability, um, uh, taking the lead and um, holding the government at the federal level's feet to the fire and ensuring that provincial governments don't claw back what the federal government provides. So, so Al, you went down to uh, Oakland and visited uh, Jerry Brown, who was the mayor there, previously the governor, became the governor later on, but you, you went and traveled a lot of places to find ideas to bring back home. So tell us a little bit about that story. Well, it, um, yeah, so every, every uh, Labor Day, Jerry Brown would host uh, thinkers from around the world, and he would bring in one leading thinker as a thinker in residence and then invite others reasonably well-known people to join him. And uh, this particular year, he invited Ivan Illich, um, who was a, you know, a man who influenced my life profoundly in the, when I was in university in the 60s. Um, he wrote a book called The Schooling Society, which said that schools make people stupider. <laughs> and his general feeling was that the professionalization of help actually uh, made people more helpless and it had a profound effect on me. I had met him once before when I was training to be a social worker. Um, so he was there and, uh, and um, a, a friend of mine, John McKnight, a community organizer himself out of Chicago, 
was uh, one of the speakers as well. So uh, a bunch of us traveled down there to uh, to uh, this um, uh, week long event, and um, as it turns out, we uh, Brown had an old warehouse <laughs> in uh, in Oakland that he had turned into uh, a large um, dormitory, and so we could we could actually sleep there. He had a massive table that we could gather around to eat, and then in the evenings. He had a separate room where three or 400 people from the area would come and listen to the speakers. And so we got to know uh, Illich a little bit better. And um, as it turns out, he had a massive football-sized growth on the side of his face, which he refused to have operated on because he, he wanted people to continue to see his smile. And so that tells you a lot about him by that as well, he was mistrustful of the medical system because he had researched it to the point where if he'd had an operation for this cancerous growth, he would not have survived as long as he had, but he was in uh, pain. And so <laughs> we got the, had the opportunity on a couple of occasions <clears throat> to go up to his room in the dormitory <laughs> and uh, where, he, where he would uh, self-medicate to control his pain. Uh, so he would smoke, so there, there we were, um, you know, listening to this master, this incredibly wise person. And then he would, he would go, he would, he would make this sound and the pain, which, and the, you know, would strike him and he would put his head down. And then a couple of times he would uh, light up his pipe and, and smoke some, uh, some opium to uh, alleviate the pain and then proceed to continue uh, expounding on whatever it was he was talking. It was, on one level, it was surreal. On, on another level, it was one of the more profound experiences of my of my life being with this uh, great man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Alda. That's fantastic. <laughs> that needs to be out there. That's so good. Pardon me? Pardon me? <laughs> I said that needs to be out there. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, sharing those uh, stories, um, Al. The, the series on Below the Radar is going to be called The Power of Disability, and Al Atmansky will be hosting a number of uh, phenomenal um, activists, social change uh, leaders, people who have done remarkable work that deserve wider um, recognition and to have those stories out into the, the, the public sphere. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us, Al. All the best. Thanks for the opportunity, Al. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Al Edmanski. Episodes of the Power of Disability series will be released Thursdays on the Below the Radar feed starting next week. Head to the show notes to learn more about Al and his book that inspired the upcoming series. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.